So, today I'm going to be starting a series on the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians. And... Um, yeah, I'm excited about it. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want the Holy Spirit to give me revelation. You know, when he gives me revelation for you, he gives me revelation for me. In fact, what I give you is just the icing on the cake. Amen. He gives me, he feeds me more, and I'm grateful for that. So I'm going to start looking at the book of Galatians, and I'm very expectant. Um, but the way we're going to do this series on Galatians is I'm going to preach this week, then my husband will preach a number of weeks, and then I'll come back maybe in February sometime when he's away ministering somewhere else and we'll continue on the book of Galatians. So you've got a lot of weeks in between to chew on the message um, that we're learning concerning the book of Galatians. Now, it's a very enriching process to look at a book at a time, to look at an epistle at a time, to look at a letter at a time, to look at a complete book. Because whenever we read the Bible, it's critical we understand the context that that was written in. It's important that we understand who the author was and where they were coming from. And it's important we understand the people they were writing to and why they were writing it. So in the case of the epistles in the New Testament, when we read an epistle and we read it like it was written for us only, we lose out on most of the meaning of that book. When we read it out of context, we can even misunderstand what the writer was actually saying. So if I am, or if my, say my husband is talking to Lanston at the back there, and I am listening to him, can I fully understand everything in that conversation if I just hear my husband's part of the conversation? No, I can't. I will better understand the situation if I understand why Lanston called my husband, what he was saying to my husband, and then what my husband is saying back to him. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we, listen, we read it and we're listening to one side of the conversation and we miss out on so much of the truth which is for us. Um, yeah, and we get to understand the complete message. And I've got a scripture here just to illustrate this to you. Um, I think just, uh, just I think the guys have it at the back. John 12, verse 32. It says, And I, if I am lifted up, this is Jesus speaking, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. How many of you have heard that scripture? Come on. Come on, guys. Are you with me? Okay, good, I'm glad. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. We hear that in praise and worship. Hey, people say, you know, if we lift up Jesus, he will draw people to him like it's a key, like it's a secret. We hear that, right? And we take that out of context. But if we just read the next verse, we would understand what it's actually saying. Because the next verse says, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. So is the lifting Jesus up got anything, does it have anything to do with praise and worship? No, it has to do with Jesus being lifted up on the cross and dying. That's what it has to do with. But often we take portions of scripture out of context like this and we don't read what comes before it and we don't read what comes after it and so we misunderstand what the author was saying. Am I saying there's anything wrong with praising and worshiping Jesus and lifting him up? No, but that's not what that verse was saying. So we want to understand Galatians in its entirety. Another example that's quite interesting is, have you heard that people say, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he? Have you heard that? Yeah, okay. Now, if we go to the portion of scripture where that is actually um, quoted, 
It's in Proverbs 23, verse 6 to 8. And I'm going to read you two translations. And then I want you to think about whether it means what it's often used to mean or whether it means something else. Okay? Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desirous delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. In behavior, one who manipulates. He says to you, eat and drink, yet his heart is not with you, but it's begrudging the cost. The morsel which you have eaten, you will vomit up. Another translation says, don't eat with people who are stingy. Don't desire their delicacies. They are always thinking about how much it costs. Eat and drink, they say, but they don't mean it. So does that portion of scripture that we like to quote, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Does it mean how we often use it in Christian circles? Like, be careful what you think, because you'll become what you think. No, it's talking about this. It's talking about a stingy man. It's talking about people who begrudge giving. Okay, it's, that's the context of that. So the beautiful thing when we study an entire book of the Bible, like we're about to do with Galatians, is we tend to understand more completely what the author is saying. There's more meat to chew on. Okay, we better position to contextualize what's being said. So, Looking at the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, okay. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches, churches in the region of Galatia, and most scholars think that it was a group of churches in southern Galatia that they actually, Paul and Barnabas actually went through, it's documented in Acts and planted those churches. That's who they think this particular book is written to. Some people say it's the northern part of Galatia, but um, that isn't documented in Acts. But whatever the case, he wrote it to a, church, a group of churches in Galatia. And um, and I love the book of Galatians because Paul is so passionate. He's actually, if you read it, his tone is almost angry. He's angry. He's very passionate about the truth of the gospel. He's very passionate that no one adds anything to the truth of the gospel. Um, he clearly draws lines of truth in Galatia, and he excludes any, any additions from man, excluding it. And it's really important that we understand that truth is truth, especially in this day and age. Paul was passionate about it here, and we also need to be passionate about it. Truth is truth. I can't change truth. I can't change the gospel to suit my situation. I can't change it to suit my desires, my lusts, my passions, my proclivities. I can't change it because my life and what I've experienced doesn't match up to the truth of the gospel. I can't change it because I like certain things in my culture more than I like the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. The truth is the truth, and it remains. By very nature, it has to be exclusive. Otherwise, it's not truth. Now, I find it's, it's quite amusing what the poet Steve Turner says. And he describes what many people think, even some Christians, when it comes to religion. He says, Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. We believe he was a good teacher of morals, but we believe that his, God, his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. It's basically everything. But anyway, that's what he says. And some Christians find themselves living their lives anyway in this boat, thinking that Jesus was a good man, just like all those other good men, and kind of mixing stuff in. And um, 
Often the parable of the elephant is used to illustrate the arrogance of Christianity or how some people perceive Christianity to be so arrogant in terms of having exclusive rights on the truth. And it goes something like this. Three blind scribes are touching an elephant. They're touching a different portion of an elephant. One scribe is holding onto its tail. And he says, no, this is a rope. It's definitely a rope. And another scribe is holding onto the elephant's leg. And he says, no, 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 this is, this is like a trunk of a tree. That's what it is. It's a trunk of a tree. And another scribe is holding onto the trunk of an elephant. He says, no, man, this is a snake. It's a snake. You guys have got it all wrong. And the parable is such that it says that religions are like that. They're all touching a portion of the truth of what is actual in reality, but none of them have the complete picture. Now, the interesting thing with that in accusing Christianity of being arrogant and saying that that's really the case is what is, what is the author of the parable actually saying? He's saying Jesus, Muhammad, all these people who claim to have an aspect of truth only have a piece of it. They only see partially, but I am the one who sees in totality because I can see that all of them only have a portion of the truth. Can you see the danger in that? No, that's very arrogant. Christianity is not arrogant. Now, in talking about Galatians, we're really talking about the gospel and we're talking about the exclusivity of the gospel and, and I'm laboring this whole introduction because it's a series and, and I'm wanting us to grasp it that Galatians is about the exclusivity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, about not adding anything else onto the simplicity and purity of the gospel. And a lot of Christians have issues with that, okay? A lot of, a lot of Christians might ask some of these questions. How can you exclude people in other religions? How can God do that? That's not loving, and God is love. Have you heard that? Okay, how can the Christians claim that to have truth and exclude all others? How can you do that? How can the gospel exclude parts of my culture? I want to be able to go the, to do this and to do that, to go to my rural home and partake in all those you know traditional um, things, consult with my ancestors. How can it exclude that? That's part of my heritage. Okay, Jesus may have said he was the way to the Father, but how can I follow him and become an intolerant person who excludes others, even my family and culture? Surely that's not loving. Surely that's not God's heart. Have you heard that? Have you felt that? Maybe you've even felt that. Okay, so we're going to be looking and answering some of these questions as we go through the book of Galatians. But it's really important that we understand that our view of the gospel and our understanding of the gospel is foundational for life. You see, when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he wasn't writing to unbelievers. He wrote it to believers. Okay, And sometimes as Christians, we think, oh, well, I've prayed the sinner's prayer, I'm saved, I've got my fire insurance, I'm okay, I've been to church for five years, I don't need to hear the gospel, I need to move on to something a little bit more meaty, please. You know, But Paul wrote it to professing believers. What does that tell me? That means that as a Christian, I too need to hear the gospel. I need to hear it again. I need to be reminded of it again. I need to say, Lord, am I building my life on the truth of your gospel or am I, am I building it on other foundations? I love what Ravi Zacharias says. He says, truth by definition is exclusive. Everything cannot be true. 
If everything is true, then nothing is false. And if nothing is false, then it would also be true to say everything is false. We cannot have it both ways. One should not be surprised at claims of exclusivity. The reality is that even those who deny truth's exclusivity in effect exclude those who do not deny it. It's true. The truth quickly emerges. The law of non-contradiction does apply to reality. Two contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense. So for instance, a Hindu can say, we don't exclude anyone. We even welcome Christians. Jesus is one of our 330 million deities. We exclude, we, we include everyone, even Christians, but he, that doesn't include us because Jesus can't be one of 330 million gods, can he? So they actually exclude us. So truth has to be exclusive, okay? The gospel that Jesus endorsed and taught and that the apostles of old taught is the truth. Anytime we add anything onto it, whether it's culture, whether it's ideas, whether it's things we think that people should do, anytime we tweak it to suit our situation because we feel uncomfortable or we think that we, we've got a better corner on the gospel, at that point, it ceases to be the gospel. We need to understand that. It's the gospel. Anytime we add anything onto it, it ceases to be the gospel. Okay? It ceases to have that power. It becomes religion. It becomes a set of rules. It becomes dead works. Okay? And that is exactly what Paul was addressing in the book of Galatians. That is exactly it. Galatians will show us that religion is dead. It's a set of rules, a set of laws that we need to keep whether we th maybe we think it will garner us favor with God, but it doesn't, and Galatians shows us that. Timothy says, Timothy Keller says, the gospel, the message that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope, creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth, for obedience, and for love. Isn't that beautiful? We are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. It creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. Okay. So, as we begin to look at Galatians, I'm wanting us, our first stop is to look at the author, which is Paul, as most of you know, okay? Paul, Paul was the author, and we'll understand better uh, some of the innuendos and some of the things he writes if we understand his history and his past. Now, in terms of Paul, in terms of the Apostle Paul, we first meet him in the book of Acts when he was Saul of Tarsus. How many of you know where you first meet Paul? Saul of Tarsus, okay, in the book of Acts, and what is he doing? He's standing over Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And this is what it says in Acts 7, verse uh, 58 to Acts 8, verse 1. They drove him out of the city and began stoning him, Stephen. And the witnesses placed their outer robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Paul. They continued stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive and accept and welcome my spirit. Then falling on his knees in worship, he cried out loudly, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not charge them. When he had said this, he fell asleep in death. Saul wholeheartedly approved of Stephen's death. Sure, he's quite a tyrant. He wholeheartedly approved of Stephen's stoning because he was a Christian, okay? So that is the gruesome introduction that we have to Paul, to the Apostle Paul. And that in itself encourages me because Paul, who was that 
much of a tyrant and a terror, killing uh, Christians, okay? God took him, and the transformation that happened because of the power of the gospel was amazing. That means, I don't know how many of you can say that you went around murdering Christians, but God took a hold of that life, and the transformative power of the gospel is seen when he then writes all those epistles and becomes the most powerful apostle in, you know, that time. And this is what Paul says about himself in Philippians 3, verse 4 to 11. And this is important when, as we go through Galatians, it's important we understand Paul's history with the law and being a Pharisee. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. So what is he saying? He's saying, make, trying to get to God, trying to gain God's approval by obeying the law. I was head and shoulders above everyone else. I was blameless. And then what does he say? But what things were gained to me, these I have counted for loss for Christ. Yes, I count all those things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness by, by obeying the law, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now this I find very interesting because as I look at Galatians, this is basically what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you churches in Galatia, and I'm probably getting a little bit ahead of myself, but anyway, you churches in Galatia are mixing law and rules to the gospel, but I'm coming, I'm telling you, you cannot mix any of that in because I know I was there. I fulfilled all of the law. I did all of that, and I'm telling you now, it doesn't compare to being in Christ. You will never achieve righteousness that way. You have to achieve it by being in Christ, the gospel, only the gospel, nothing added to the gospel. That is what he's saying. And Saul, as you, as you know, he has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus where he's on his way doing his stuff, wanting to persecute the Christians, killing Christian leaders and so forth. And Jesus speaks to him in an audible voice and says to him, um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then basically he falls blind for three days. He's healed of that. But the Lord speaks to him and he gets his message of the gospel directly from Jesus. And it says that later on in Acts um, Acts 9, that he got his message from Jesus. And that's also important as we're looking at the book of Galatians. He didn't get it from any other apostle. He got it from the Lord. And it says in Acts 9, verse about 20, immediately he went and preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. So this gospel that Paul writes about in Galatians, he experienced its transformative power firsthand, and he was instructed in it by the Lord himself, okay? I just want to ask you a few questions right now. So we looked at Paul, we've looked at his history, we looked that he kept the law completely, that God saved him out of that and instructed him in the gospel, and he was saved and he went for it, he was going for it radically. Now I want to ask you, what was your state when you got saved, if you got saved? What was your state? 
What was your state? Were you a good person? In, in your mind, were you a good person? Did you abide by certain laws that you thought would keep you in right standing with God? From what were you saved? Can you remember from what, you, from what were you saved? In retrospect now, do you know what God saved you from? And to what have you been saved? Do you know what God has saved you to? Because he saves us from and he saves us to. Do you know that? These are important questions. Where would you have been if he hadn't saved you? Where would you have been? If I think of where I would have been, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful. Are we grateful to God for that? Sometimes as Christians, we just move on and we forget so easily. Where would you be? Do you give God praise and thanksgiving for that? Because he deserves that. Amen. Right, our first stop was the Apostle Paul. Our next stop is the background and the context to the book of Galatians. The background and the context. Okay? The Apostle Paul, once he was saved and the Lord instructed him, he became a church planting missionary. And he would go around and he would plant churches, establish churches, disciple believers. Sometimes he would stay there for a period. And then he would move on. And how he would uh, instruct, encourage, and supervise the churches is through his letters. And many of those are now the epistles in the New Testament. Okay, They were written to specific churches with Paul's instructions. Now the churches, the churches in Galatia that many scholars believe the book of Galatians was written to, to um, Barnabas and Paul had planted those churches, uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. Um, those are the those are the the cities, and you can have a look at that in Acts 13 to 14. So it's likely that the book of Galatians was addressed to these particular churches. And this letter was written by Paul, they think around AD 49 to 50. So it was very close to when Jesus, Jesus died about 15 to 20 years before that. So very close to when he died. Um, it's really the early church, okay? And the context of the, the particular book of Galatians is the first Christians were Jewish, okay? The first Christians, they were in Jerusalem, they were Jewish. And as the gospel spread, the, a number of Gentiles, non-Jewish people began to convert to Christianity and receive the gospel. And a group of teachers in Galatia, specifically um, who, were, yeah, who were Jewish, began to teach the, the converts in Galatia that there were certain aspects of the Mosaic law that they had to um, abide by and live by in order to fully um, achieve salvation. That, that, that They basically were saying Paul received his gospel from other apostles in Jerusalem and he didn't receive the full gospel and we've got the full gospel and we have got the corner on truth and the truth is that yes, 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 there's that. There's salvation by faith through grace. Yes, there's that. Yes, but there's also this. You have to be circumcised. You have to abide by certain dietary laws from the Jewish customs. There are other certain uh, Jewish celebration, celebratory feasts you have to um, observe. There are other things in our culture and law as Jewish people that you also have to do. Now, how many of you can think about the gospel and you can also think about a few other things where you're like, oh, okay, um, this person has said, yes, there's the gospel, but. Sometimes we do it with ourselves. Hey, yes, there's a gospel, but, and then we add rules on, okay? Now, 
the, the, the controversy in the, in the churches in Galatia may seem, narrow, uh, may seem remote to us today, but they were basically insisting on a Christ plus this gospel as a means of salvation. Christ plus. Okay, Christ plus. But it's important for us to realize, as Paul was uh, speaking to them even uh, in his book to, uh, of Galatians, that our acceptance by God, there is nothing that we can do to cause us to be more accepted by God. As soon as we try to do that, that is law. That is law. That is adding on to the gospel, okay? And it was in this, in the response to this threat that Paul wrote this book, okay? And he unapologetically fought this different gospel, okay? And if you go and look, and I encourage you to go and read through the book of Galatians, um, Paul expounds in detail what the gospel is and how it works. And he explains how this acceptance and this truth of salvation by grace through faith without works doesn't then give us a license to live anyhow we like. He goes and explains all of that if you read the whole of Galatians 1 through 6. But the start is that there's nothing that we can do to add on to what Jesus did to gain us salvation. Amen. Okay. You're still with me. That's good. <laughs> okay. Now, I want to read to you Galatians 1. Are you with me? I'm going to read to you Galatians 1. And um, please listen. Because as I said to my husband, you know, my love, if I can read this to them, it's just, he puts it so succinctly and clearly that I couldn't summarize it any better, <laughs> to be honest. Okay, so Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not commissioned and sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to save and sanctify us that he might rescue us from this pre present evil age in accordance with the will and purpose and plan of our God and Father. To him be the glory. Perversion of the gospel. I am astonished and extremely irritated. Yes, that's in the Bible. <laughs> I am astonished and extremely irritated that you're so quickly shifting your allegiance and deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different country gospel, which is not really a, another gospel. There are obviously some people masquerading as teachers who are disturbing and confusing you with a misleading counterfeit teaching. They want to distort the gospel of Christ, twisting it into something it is not. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we originally preached, let him be condemned to destruction. Wow. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a different gospel from that which, we, which you receive from us, let him be condemned to destruction. Am I trying to win the favor and approval of men or of God? Am I seeking to please someone? If I was trying to be popular with men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Then Paul carries on and he says, I want you to know, believers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not a human invention. It's not patterned after any human concept. For indeed, I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through direct revelation of Jesus Christ. You've heard of my career and former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to hunt down and persecute the church of God extensively with fanatical zeal, and I tried my best to destroy it. 
And you have heard how I have surpassed many of my contemporaries among my countrymen in my advanced study of the laws of Judaism, as I was extremely loyal to the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had chosen me and set me apart before I was born, called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and stayed a while. And then he goes on and he just documents his movements briefly, which, and I don't need to go into that. So you can see there that Paul is passionate. Paul has said a lot of powerful, a, a lot of strong things, a lot of powerful things. And Galatians 1, verse 1 to 5, his greeting to the churches is very brief. It's very direct. And he begins with a defense of his apostleship and rounds it up by summarizing the gospel. He says, Paul, an apostle, not commissions and sent from men through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ. Okay. And it's interesting if you look at Paul's greetings and all his other letters. I've got a whole table here. Paul will describe himself as an apostle of Jesus in Ephesians, 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, Philippians, he describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Colossians, he describes himself as an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. Um, 1 Timothy, it's a similar thing, apostle of Jesus according to the will of God. But in Galatians, to the church in Galatia, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ. Why is he being so forceful and strong? Because those teachers were accusing him that he wasn't really an apostle that he didn't really have the teaching from Jesus. So he says, no, 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 guys, I just want you to know that I'm really an apostle and I'm not an apostle by man or from man or, and I didn't get my message from man or anything like that. I got it from Jesus. I got it directly from Jesus. And he also um, emphasizes that he was commissioned and was taught directly by the risen Jesus himself. And I love that. I love that. He wasn't asking for anyone's approval. He wasn't asking for those guys to say, to give him some type of royal, like touch on the head and say, yes, you're an apostle. He didn't care. He's like, guys, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, God said, I'm an apostle and he sent me and this is what he gave me to preach. And it's not from man, but this is what it is. He's so clear. He's so direct. So I want to ask you this morning, do you know that God has called you? Because he's called all of us. He's called all of us. Do you know like that, like how Paul knew? Do you know that? Are you, do, are you sure and sold out in your heart that God has called you? Can you define what he's called you to? Because Paul knew, if I read through some of his epistles, he's very clear. He's called to this and he's not called to this. I remember in one of them he says, no, I wasn't called to baptize, although I baptized a few. He knows what he's called to and he knows what he's not called to. Sometimes when we say yes to the things that we can do, but they're not our primary calling, we end up saying no to the primary calling that God has on our lives. We have to know what it is he's called us to. Another question for you, are you constantly reliant on someone else's opinion, someone else's endorsement, someone else's recognition, someone else's praise. Do you need that authority, your boss, your friends? Do you need your spouse, your boyfriend, your, whoever it is? Do you need their approval? Do you seek it almost like permission before you can do what God has called you to do? Because Paul didn't do that. Do you rely more on man's validation than God's calling? 
How convinced are you about God's calling? And I'm asking these questions because I'm wanting us to be provoked, to be provoked to something deeper, to say, Lord, maybe I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that I know exactly what my calling is, but you know, Lord, and you don't want it to be a mystery f- to me forever. So please, would you make it clear to me? And you know what? He's faithful. He's faithful. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In him also we have received an inheritance, a destiny. We were claimed by God as his own, having been predestined, chosen, appointed beforehand, according to the purpose of him who works everything in agreement with the counsel and design of his will. Wow, I was predestined. I was chosen. Isn't that so encouraging? It's encouraging to me. Jeremiah 1 verse 45. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Wow. Before he was even formed in the womb. And he wasn't special that way. It's the same with all of us. Every single person has a purpose. Every single person has something that God has called them to. Even if a child is conceived by some act of incest or rape or whatever, God in his mercy has a purpose on that child. That child did not sin. That child didn't ask to be brought into the world that way. Every single person, no matter the, the um, context of the conception, every person has a purpose. I don't care what you tell me. I don't care what you've done. I don't care your history. I don't care how you were conceived. I don't care whatever. God has a purpose for your life. And if God can take Paul and transform him and use him so powerfully with the gospel, transformed, completely transformed, doesn't matter your history, God can do the same. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Come on, ladies. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And listen to this. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. I love that. I don't know where that book is. I don't know if it's a literal book. I don't know if there are multiple books or if it's one really big book for everyone. But this I know. It says that there's a book where all my days have been written in that book. Because God already knew about me. He already knew the gifts that he would give me. The passions. Things that I can't reconcile in myself. Lord, I love triathlon. I love sport. Lord, I'm a pastor's wife. Triathlon's on Sunday. Lord, why why did you do this? This is hard. Lord, I'm a mom. Lord, I don't know how all these things meet, but this I know. Those are my passions. Those are my callings. And somehow, somewhere, they'll marry and God will use them. Amen. That's how he made me. He already wrote every day of my life in his book. God has something for each and every one of us. Galatians 1 verse 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from, our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sins to save and sanctify us, that he might rescue us from this present evil age in accordance with the will and purpose and plan of God our Father. To him be ascribed all the glory through the ages of the ages. Amen. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That is it right there. A few lines. Paul was clear about his message, very clear, right at the beginning of the book. That's his message. He knew what it was, and he knew who it was to, and he knew why he was sent to deliver it. What is your message? 
We all have a message. Maybe you won't write it. Maybe you'll sing it. Maybe your life is a message. What is your message? Do you know who it's to? Do you know the people that God has specifically designed you to be sent to? Do you know who they are? Because when we understand those things, it's easy for us to it's easier for us to not miss the opportunities. Amen. Timothy Keller in his book entitled Galatians for you, he outlines he outlines and unpacks this so well and I'm going to lean on him for this portion. He un- outlines and unpacks that particular portion of Galatians verse 3 to 5. You know, Paul says um that Christ gave himself for us, that he might rescue us, that he might rescue us. And that word rescue, what does it imply? It implies rescue. It implies that we are actually lost, that we actually need to be rescued. So it imply, it, it's basically saying that we don't need a teacher, we need a rescuer. Okay, some people think that Jesus was a good teacher. Yes, he was. But to us, he was more than that. He was actually our savior. And he rescued us. If a woman is drowning in the sea, you don't throw her a manual on how to swim. Do you? She's lost. She's helpless. She needs help. So we throw her a lifeline and she's saved. Yes, later on she can learn how to swim. And that is what Jesus did for us. Okay, Paul implies that it's impossible for us to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We need Jesus to save us. We're in a lost and helpless condition. Now, what did Jesus do in order to save us? He gave himself for our sins. He made a sacrifice, which is substitutionary in late. In, in nature. Now, substitution is why the gospel is so revolutionary. He didn't just purchase a second chance for us. He actually gave us a new life. That's what it is. He said, you can't fulfill all the requirements of the law in order to access my father and, and get salvation, but I can, and I'm going to do that. Now, you, if you choose to live by the law, you can do that, but you're going to fail. But if you choose to accept what I did, I did it for you, and it's a free gift, and I'll save you, and you'll, be, you'll receive that new life because you've accepted what I did. So God accepted the work of Christ on our behalf by raising him from the dead and giving us grace and peace, and God did it out of grace, not because of anything we've done, people, not because of our will, not because we thought we needed it and then we availed ourselves and then he did it. No, God saw the need and he provided the answer before we even knew that there was anything wrong, okay? God in his grace planned what we didn't realize we needed, okay? And that is why the only one who can ever get glory is God, because we didn't have anything to do with it. The minute we have anything to do with it, we mess it up, and we try to take glory for ourselves. No, the only person who can ever get glory for it is God. The biblical gospel, Paul's gospel, is clear that salvation from first to last is God's doing. It's his calling. It's his plan. It's his action. It's his work, and it's him who deserves the glory for all time, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I know myself, and I like to hustle certain things. I like to make certain plans. I like to figure things out and make it work. What does that mean? That means that sometimes when things aren't going how I think they should go, I like to rescue myself. I'm sure most women are like that. We're good at making plans, okay? 
Now, we love to be our own saviors, and this applies to everyone. We love to be our own saviors. We love to make a plan for ourselves. We love to rescue ourselves. We love to provide solutions for ourselves, okay? And Jeremiah 2 verse 13, it says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have rejected me, the fountain of living water, and they have carved out their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What is that saying? Guys, whenever you try to make your own plan to be your own source, to rely on yourself to sort it out, whenever you try to obey this and this and this to gain favor with God, it's a broken system. We are forsaking what Jesus did on the cross. We're forsaking his gospel, okay? Now, I have some questions here again for you. What is your source of salvation or rescue? What is your source of salvation or rescue? Where do you run to in order to be rescued? Do you run to alcohol? Do you run to a person? Do you run to your boss? Do you run to work? Do you run to fame, success, finances, shopping? Do you run to going for a run even? What do you run to? Where is your source of salvation or rescue? Where do you run in order to be rescued from loneliness, from pain? Where do you run? From despair, from doubt, from fear, where do you run? When we run to things that are not Jesus, we're digging our own systems and we're making, we're creating our own, we're being our own savior, which is not really a savior. Amen. Okay. Is it Jesus my strong tower or alcohol or addictive relationships or intellect or fame or drugs? What is it? What gospel are you living your life out of right now? Is it one where you believed you were sa- you believe you were saved by grace and now you must add certain works to gain God's favor and approval or do certain things to remain in God's good books? Paul knew who he was by God's grace. He was so clear about it that even when others questioned it, he defended it. He could defend it. Who are you by God's grace? Who are you? Where do you find yourself right now today? God always locates us. He always locates us. And when he locates us, he often doesn't say anything, particularly about where we are. He'll ask us a question. Where are you going, Hagar? Where are you, Adam? Okay, God can locate us, but do you know where you are? How has he called you? How has he commissioned you? Paul's letters to Corinth, the Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, and so forth, we see that he usually gives, begins his letters with a greeting, he follows it up with a thanksgiving, then he follows it up with a prayer for those he's writing to. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he launches straight into the reason for his letter. No thanksgiving, no prayer. He's agitated. Galatians 1 verse 6 to 9, I am astonished and extremely irritated that you're so quickly shifting your allegiance and deserting him who called you for a different gospel. Okay? And he, I read it just now and he, he talks about those teachers who are disturbing and confusing the church. So from the beginning of Galatians, you understand the occasion for Paul's letter. And he was really upset. He was really passionate about it. And, and that brings me to my next question for you. How protective are you over those you're discipling when it comes to the pure gospel? Because if we to follow Paul's example, he was so 
protective. He was passionate. He was livid almost that there were these other teachers coming and bringing a contrary truth. How protective are you over the gospel and over those you are discipling, whether it's your children in your house, whether it's your friends, whether it's those in your go group? Okay, Paul was extremely passionate. His love for the people and his passion for the gospel was so strong that correction and teaching was just a natural outflow. And yes, we have to do it in love, but it was an outflow for him. There wasn't even an issue of, oh, what are they going to think? Oh, oh, no. It just came. Okay, these are part of the discipleship process. In church, it can never be each one doing what is right in his own eyes. It can never be that. It can't because truth, as we discussed, is exclusive, okay? So Paul was extremely passionate about the purity and the centrality of the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Because if we do not know the gospel, how can we be passionate about it? Is it really good news to you? Are you keeping the main thing the main thing? Or are you adding other things? Some salt and some pepper, some tomato sauce. <laughs> Have you learned to make the basics beautiful or are you majoring on the minors? Okay, the reality in our lives is that we often experience certain pressures from those around us. Sometimes it's pressures to conform. Like Peter did, we'll read later on Galatians, to conform to, other, to rituals and to customs and to others' expectations. And sometimes it's easier to bow to that because it's more difficult to explain why we're not doing it, okay? Often these pressures can come from authority, from spiritual authority, to, from family, from peers. But to, con to conform to these things would constitute double-mindedness, okay? And James is quite clear about it. He says, but when we ask, we must ask without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a billowing surge of the sea that is blown about and tossed by the wind. Such a person ought not to think or expect he will receive anything at all from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable and restless in all his ways. I don't want to be that man, double-minded, unstable and restless, not receiving anything from the Lord. Okay? Sometimes it's actual pressure to conform teachings to a certain thing. Sometimes it's actual pressure that we, that we feel, that we receive, and we have to stand and say, you know what, this is where I can go to, and I can't go any further. Amen. Do you have the tendency to add to the gospel of grace in your life, to add to the truth of salvation? Is it you, you feel like you're saved if you have your quiet time every day this week? You feel like you'll garner God's approval if you pray for X number of minutes every single day or X number of hours, or you'll garner his favor if you fast. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but as soon as we tack it on, it's other things that we're adding on which are not from God, okay? And the thing is that it's dangerous because whatever we apply to ourselves, we tend to apply to other people. So as soon as we apply that standard to ourselves, we now begin to be judgmental and critical about other people, okay? And that's not great. And I think I'm going to wrap it up there. So we got through to verse 9 of the first chapter of Galatians today. Be sure to come for the next uh, installment. <laughs> So Paul wrote the book of Galatians to a group of churches in the region of Galatia who were being misled by Jewish teachers, spiritual authorities regarding the gospel. And he clearly and passionately 
clarified what the gospel is, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that works simply cannot have a part in our being saved, in our salvation. Okay? Amen. Did you get something this morning?